With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Proud to be brought to you in part by StarCityGames.com. Not only are they the home of the top content and coverage on the web, they're also the world's largest independent retailer for Magic the Gathering singles and supplies. For more information, visit StarCityGames.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lords of Limited. My name is Ben Warney, and joining me on the line is Ethan Sachs. Ethan, I've got a confession to make. What's your confession? I played Paper Magic last night voluntarily. Ooh, baby. I actually know that. I was going to ask you if I could do the intro of the show, so I could have said, and joining me on the line is FNM champion Ben Warney. That would have been an awesome introduction. <laughs> so how'd it go? How was it? It was good. It was fun. I went to the Game Preserve in Greenwood, and it was a really nice place, really nice people. I chatted with all three of my opponents. They were all very nice, and was in a 10-person pod, which was a little unusual, um, it's definitely different drafting in a 10 person pod than an eight person pod. And I ended up mono green after getting past like pick five and six deathless nights, I think, or maybe pick four and six deathless nights in pack one, but I barely made it on playables in mono green. It was, a, it was just a different dynamic than drafting online or on drafting arena. It was different, different puzzle, different flow. Yeah, I think I've done like a 10 person pod once, like way back in the day when I was like first starting to draft and went to an LGS. Definitely a different experience. Yeah, it was really sweet. They gave us gifts in between each round because it was the FNM before Christmas. So the first round I got like a foil Lotus Veil, I think is the name of the land from M20 that like you have to sacrifice two lands and then taps for three man of any color. That's a pioneer staple right now. Yeah, got that. And then the next round you picked a number and you got like a sweet you know, sealed product. So I got two boosters of M M2019. As you said, I was naughty on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> that was my gift, but it was really unexpected. It was just a super fun time. So I gave my my packs to uh, the son of one of my opponents who was there oh, his nice. Christmas. Yeah, it was, it was just really fun. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I, I think a pack of M19 is basically like getting coal in your stocking. So that's, <laughs> that's about how I'd equate that. Um, so aside from uh, a little FNM action, you've also been cubing this week, right? Yeah, I've been queuing up a storm. We've we've Skyped into each other's or I don't know why we still call it Skyping in. We, we've Discorded <laughs> into each other's streams. It's just like the ubiquitous term now. It's like calling like a tissue Kleenex or something, you know. Right. So we Skyped into each other's streams and <laughs> <laughs> we've had some good times. You're, yeah. you're pretty hard on not drafting blue. You want to talk about that at all? Yeah, I actually just finished up my uh, last Card Sphere article for the year that should be going up probably by the time this episode is up on my favorite deck to draft in Vintage Cube right now, which is Jund. I'm calling it Jund Attrition, but it's really just like a bunch of value. It's got like the engines of like Crucible Strip Mine, so sort of trying to destroy your opponent's lands and then recur your own. Now there's Ramianap Excavator and Renin Six, which I really, really like as like 
redundant pieces of that. Um, but yeah, I've just been burned a few too many times. And it feels like this iteration of Vintage Cube is just different. Like people know a lot more. Like you're not getting late signets. Like it's rare drafts where you get a lot of fast mana, a lot of mana rocks. And so I'm trying to combat that by going in and saying, all right, well, what's a good thing to fight these busted decks? And it's decks that like are low to the ground, have a lot of disruption, like hand disruption, like Thoughtseize and Duress and things like that. And just a lot of two for ones, like Kolagon's Command, cheap Planeswalkers, all that good stuff. And I'm really, really having success with it. Like This is my first time going, look, I think Cube is like not about right or wrong or I mean, I want to win, obviously, but I want to have fun mostly. And so I'm just sort of going in with that mindset of like, what am I going to have the most fun doing? And it's definitely going to be not getting cut out of blue. Yeah. And it, and to be clear, we've talked about it a little bit. You're not saying don't draft blue. You're just when there's when there's a tiebreaker between two cards and the the other card is not blue, you're taking the not blue card. Yes. And I'm not going to avoid blue, but I'm not interested in starting a draft blue. I want to more see that that's an open signal I'm receiving rather than going, ooh, I'm going to like first pick opposition and build around it. Like I'm trying to go like, is there anything else in this pack that's close to as sweet as opposition that I can take instead? That sort of thing. Right. Yeah, I've been drafting cube as well. I'm still drafting blue quite happily. I am bummed that the artifact rocks are not coming around. It does feel very different, like even different from last year. This feels like more people know what they're doing, like you said. So we can't draft. It's hard to draft our balance, you know, wildfire upheaval Mm -hmm. nonsense decks. So I've been trying to find what it is I want to do. I've been mono white a lot. I do like that deck. I think it's very powerful. I've trophied three times with mono white or near mono white. Oh, wow. Yeah, that deck's really good when it comes together. Not the most exciting thing to draft and play, but it is very powerful. Reanimator has been really impressive. You and I drafted that once together. Yeah, it's been it's been fun. And it's been a fun puzzle figuring out what to do without the mana rocks that I think is both of our default go to like neither of us really love storm because it's a little too much math for both of us but the (laughs) mana rock balance stuff was the next sweetest thing you could do and i think and that's not readily available anymore so i think my my tendency is to go towards black white disruption decks with thought seize mana tithe whatever get down under the opponent and then try to disrupt them and and win with some creatures and swords yeah my feeling is if you're not doing the broken things you should be disrupting the broken things your opponents are doing and i think both jund and black white are really good homes for that yep absolutely so uh, this is just a little you know ben and i really like cube give us an opportunity to talk about it for a few minutes we aren't going to be doing a full cube episode this vintage cube season but we would of course encourage anyone who's interested or playing on magic online or thinking about oh i want to dive into cube but maybe it's scary we do have some resources for you in our backlogs episode 25 i believe is our vintage cube crash course um and by and large it's all the same stuff like vintage cube you know certainly they've added some eldraine cards oko is now honorary power nine etc but by and large (laughs) it's like the same cards, the same archetypes, the same sorts of things you want to be doing. So a lot of the stuff we talk about in that episode is going to be applicable here. We had Caleb Durward on to talk about Cube. I don't remember that exact episode number, but we can link it in the show notes. Um, So we have some resources. And of course, a lot of people are streaming or making YouTube content. And once you watch a few drafts, you sort of get a sense of what the archetypes are and what all the cards are, because it's a finite card pool. So it, it does feel a little daunting. But if it's something you're interested in jumping into, I know one of our Discord members, lemon flavored tea who's also a streamer he just like dove into his first cube draft on stream the other night and that just like really excited me and he was really happy about it i mean he did a lot of reading obviously because a lot of cards he wasn't familiar with but i I think uh you just got to jump into that deep end yep all right so this week 
We're doing the Lords of Limited patented 50 takes in 50 minutes episode for Throne of Eldraine. This is sort of our like send off episode for the set slash a really good resource for folks to be able to come back to. Let's say we get some new listeners next year who didn't play with Eldraine and then it comes up as the ranked set on Arena. I think this is a really good way to jump in and go, all right, well, I'm going to get a lot of information really quickly. So we're going to run through 50 hot takes in 50 minutes about the set. But before we get into any of that, got to talk about some housekeeping. Talk about that Lords of Limited Patreon. Makes me all warm and fuzzy, Ben, around the holiday season. Patreon.com slash Lords of Limited, where folks choose to get back to the show. The show's always going to be free, but if you want to get back to the show, get access to the Lords of Limited Discord and some higher tier rewards as well. All of that information is available for you at our Patreon page. And of course, each and every week, we want to welcome our new patrons to the fold. This week, we're welcoming Matthew, Joshua, Dalton, Robert, and Carell. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We really appreciate your support. Yeah, cannot say thank you enough. Merry Christmas to you new patrons and Merry Christmas to all of our patrons out there. Yeah, couldn't agree more. All right, Ben, I'm going to start the timer here. We're going we're gonna to be true to our 50-minute countdown here. Are you ready to dive into our first of 50 takes here? Point number one, all 10 color pairs and five monocolor decks are draftable and good when open. All right, quick question, Ben. Is this the most depth and diversity of competitive archetypes we've ever seen? I think it is. Absolutely. Yes. I think this is every one of those is draftable. And I think every one of those 15 has different flavors depending on what build around rares you get and what build around uncommons you get. Yeah. I mean, and we're talking about 15 decks here as the the 10 color pairs and the five mono color decks. And there's even maybe a little bit more wiggle room there. But yeah, as you're saying, like, are you base black with some green? Are you a true black green split? Are you more green and you're aggressive with some like black removal? Like the decks have a lot of wiggle room even among the two color archetypes. Yeah. And that's part of what makes this format great. Agreed. I think that's going to be a lot of our takes here is just us gushing over this format. Number two, finding your lane is extremely important since all 15 archetypes are roughly equal. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think you're supposed to take gold cards as signals if they're going late. Like, for example, at FNM, I moved in on those two Deathless Knights I saw, and I think, you know, ended up getting rewarded. Black wasn't open, but green was open enough that I got there with double Deathless Knight and double Rampart Smasher. Nice. In conjunction with taking gold cards as signals, I think taking artifacts early allows you to hashtag delay the decision and stay open longer. Yeah, all of those artifacts, you know, that looked not great at the beginning, I think are all a notch better than we initially thought we were. And we talked about, we dedicated a whole episode to talking about that. But just stuff like Golden Egg, stuff like Scalding Cauldron, not quite to the level of Golden Egg or, you know, Spinning Wheel or Heraldic Banner. Those things all give you a lot of flexibility and a lot of agency to make picks and to pivot. And I think that's really powerful in Throne of Eldraine Draft. By and large, all of the cards are playable, I think. Like there's you know, some junker commons at the bottom rung of the common tier rankings, but they all sort of mostly have a place. And so you're not going to be hard up on playables. I think unless you're sort of trying to go for a a true monocolor deck that can sort of make you like go, oh, well, my 20 through 23rd cards aren't great. But beyond that, I think that, you know, being flexible early in the packs, you're going to get rewarded when you find your lane because you will make playables. Absolutely. Number three, blue green is the best shell for multicolor good stuff. Oh, baby, am I just in love with this deck? I mean, I think this was something we came to pretty late in the format. I think for the first few weeks we were saying, well, you know, there's a lot of decks you can draft. There's the 10 color pairs and five monocolor decks, but there isn't really 
a splishy splash deck. But I think we were wrong. I mean, Rosethorn Acolyte, Beanstalk Giant, Spinning Wheel, Golden Egg, Heraldic Banner to an extent, these all give you options to splash. And I think Blue Green is the best shell for being able to ramp slash draw cards. And that's sort of what Watsi outlined in, in their initial explanation of what this archetype was trying to do. But I think uh, being able to splash for some powerful bombs is definitely in this deck's wheelhouse. Shout out to Blue Green. <laughs> yeah, I've loved Blue Green as well. Came to it late in the format. And I think it's one of my favorite decks to draft right now in Eldraine, which is kind of weird just to over the course of a format, find a deck that you like that much that wasn't something you were doing initially in the format. Yeah, I hadn't drafted Blue Green in like my first, I don't know, a large number of drafts. And now it's one of my favorite decks that I, I try and lean into. Number four, speaking of splashing, Grumgully is the best splash in the format. I think this is like secretly a blue-green or blue-red splash card more than... I mean, it's great in red-green non-humans, don't get me wrong, but really pairs well with a lot of token makers in the format. Yeah, Mad Ratter, Improbable Alliance, Stolen by the Fae, pretty nuts with all of those cards and very easy to splash once you've got a spinning wheel and a golden egg. Mm -hmm. Number five, Heraldic Banner is deceptively flexible. You've been the champion of this card starting a about like maybe like halfway through the format, you think? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, I was pretty down on the card initially. I looked at it, I was like, well, this is like probably only going to be good in aggressive monocolored decks. So then you get the use of both things. Like it's a mana rock that can maybe help you not play that extra land or something, but you really want to have the maximum efficiency of the plus one plus oh for your whole deck, not just like half your deck. But I think it's actually much better than that. Yeah. And also goes really well in the blue white artifacts and enchantments deck because you've often got a lot of white flyers that are pretty cheap and low power. And if you get to name white on that, it's an artifact for your blue white artifact enchantment stuff. And buffing the power of things like Fairy Guide Mother and Flutterfox that are kind of smaller creatures is pretty big game. Yeah. And even like, you know, your gold cards like Shine Chaser or Arcanist Owl get benefits from that as well. Number six, Adventure is a slam dunk limited mechanic. I, I can't remember the last time I was like so head over heels for a mechanic like this. Yeah, it's really, really good. It has a lot of interesting decision making, whether to play your thing as a two one way to whether to sandbag it. And it just gives you a lot of cool build arounds, Lucky Clover, Edgewall Innkeeper to go along with them. I, I really love adventure. Well, the thing that it does that like a lot of limited mechanics that are, are great allow you to do is like smooth out your draws like cycling or getting extra spells from things like flashbacks like it feels like you get to have you know if you have a bunch of adventures you can have like 28 to 30 spells in your 23 card deck and that's a really powerful thing to have in, in a, a limited deck of 40 cards right i would say adventure as a mechanic is the reason that the aggro decks are good in throne of eldraine yes 100% agree. Because you just get a play creatures and those creatures double as combat tricks. And then if you get a stick one of the combat tricks and two for one your opponent and play a threat afterwards, it's just such a big thing to allow you to keep your foot on the gas and compete into the late game. Speaking of aggro decks, what's number seven? White is great in ELD. Wake up, sheeple. Yeah, so many people are still, I mean, I've, maybe people have come around now by the end of the format, but even a month, a month and a half in, I feel like there were still folks who were like, is white good here? It feels like like it's not good here. I mean, soft avoiding white because it wasn't good in some previous sets like War of the Spark or Modern Horizons or M20, I think is a real mistake here. Yeah, that was just a breath of fresh air as a content creator because I felt bad just saying white's terrible. Don't draft white. I don't want to draft white. I think that's one of the things that we like so much about Throne of Eldraine is that you can just sit down 
and draft whatever and feel good about drafting whatever. And I think it was Adventure, that fairy guide mother, Ardenvale tactician that pushed white over the top, that mechanic of giving you an aggressive threat and a card that's good in the late game when you top deck it. Yeah, I mean, Ardenvale tactician is a pushed common. And I think that's sort of exactly what white needed to be put in the like same tier as the other colors in this format. Number eight. Bacon to a pie is the best common in the set. I think there was some like waffling. Maybe Reeve Soul was better because it's cheaper, etc. Not as color committing. Maybe Golden Egg or Scalding Cauldron are better because they're colorless. I think the dust is settled. Bacon to a pie, best common. You stayed strong the whole time. I wavered. I did. I did stay strong. Shout out to me. <laughs> Black's commons, I think, after bacon to a pie drop off really sharply. So you've got bacon to a pie, you've got Reeve Soul, and then number three is like smitten sword master probably yeah i i really just think like number three is so deck dependent like there are times where you're going to want sword master there are times where you're food and you want tempting witch there's times where you want lost legion because you're a more controlling deck or you want malevolent noble because you want to be drawing cards like that that just really is so deck dependent and like where you are at in that particular point in the draft that i have no that I feel like I can't name what the, the number three black common is. Okay, quick quick derail here. Somebody asked me this on stream last night, and I'm very curious about your opinion. Pack one, pick one, Sir Conrad or Bone Crusher Giant? Oof, that's close. I think Bone Crusher Giant, but very, very close. That's what I landed on as well, mostly because I think Sir Conrad might be a better card, but I just feel like I'm going to get pushed off black. And I think that's one of the things with black's commons being so shallow. If black's open, because the best commons and the uncommons are so busted, your deck's very good. But if like three or four people are trying to draft black and, you know, two or three of them open a bacon to a pie and stick to it, you just can't draft black because it's not deep enough at common. Well, I also think Bonecrusher Giant is just probably you look at any red deck because red is mostly aggressive. Any red deck that has Bonecrusher Giant, Bonecrusher Giant is probably going to be the best card in that deck. Right. Moving on, number nine, a golden egg is one of the top commons in the set. I was a, I was a champion of this early. I'm going to shout myself out here. <laughs> shout out to Ben. Yeah, I think Bacon to a Pie, Ardenville Tactician, Scorching Dragonfire are probably the only commons you would take over at pack one, pick one. Um, it just enables so much. There's the fact that it lets you delay the decision of what your color is. The fact that it has synergies in black green that cares about food or in white blue that cares about artifacts. Blue red that cares about the card draw. Exactly. Like it's just going to do a lot of very, very tiny things in basically any deck you end up in that I think it's a really high pick, a deceptively high pick. Well, and with the mana base considerations too, all of a sudden, if you're a monocolored and you want to splash a card, splashing a card or two or three from another color looks a lot more appealing once you have a golden egg or two in your pile. Number 10, the build around rares are really what make Throne of Eldraine a special draft format. I think you and I are in love with a lot of the cards on this list and even beyond, but it's it's more a set that feels like the, the rares are the fun build arounds where normally I feel like uncommons are the build around cards of a limited format. Right. It's a little bit more of a chase, a little bit, a little bit more of a dragon that you have to try to slay. Yeah, but I also feel like, I mean, some of these cards, I think everyone has an idea that they're powerful, like Emery or Folio of Fancies or Midnight Clock. But beyond that, I think a lot of these cards, when they get opened, make their way around the table. And so if you're knowledgeable enough to know how to maximize these cards and pick them early and build around them, you can get rewarded pretty handsomely. Yeah, I feel like our podcast is doing the Lord's work. The, my FNM neighbor that was passing to me drafted a sweet Dance of the Man's deck, and I was a little a little, little bummed that I didn't get to do it. Yeah, why did you didn't wear your hashtag I'm with Ethan shirt? 
to your FNM, and now you can't ever wear it. You don't think so? Because you didn't wear it the first time. No, no. I think now it's going to seem braggy. You went in there, you won. <laughs> now you're going to be like, oh, by the way, I host this podcast. I don't know. <laughs> so a couple other rares on this list that we didn't talk about. Fay of Wishes, Dance of the Mance, as Ben mentioned, Fires of Invention, Doom Foretold. There's just a lot of sweetness out there. A lot of rares that look bad, but are actually really fun to build around. Number 11, Adventure Combat Tricks should be on your mind at all times against Naya opponents. And I would square that cube that exponentially on arena so yeah. boulder rush from rimrock knight on alert from silver flame squire and shields might from garen brig carver those are all very playable cards even high picks i think rimrock knight and silver flame squire are pretty high picks garen brig carver's a little more filler ish but still good and i think if you're playing against an opponent, especially if they look to have an adventure sub theme, you should be very wary of those cards i think early on in the format the set got a lot of hate because it felt I think it was getting compared a lot to Amonkhet where like, well, you just can't ever block because these combat tricks exist and your opponent isn't having to like put extra spells in their deck because they're all attached to creatures. But I found a lot of fun or a lot of like cool puzzles come out of trying to like be like, okay, well, if they have Shields Might, I can do X, but if they have Insatiable Appetite, I can do Y. If they have Boulder Rush, I do X, but if they have Barge In, I can do Y. Like figuring out what your opponent has or like trying to peg them on it or going, oh, I saw this spell in game one, so I'll play around that instead of the one I haven't seen. Like I found that to be sort of a rewarding experience. Right, and not to mention if you're patient and can set up a scenario where you blow out their combat trick at instant speed, it's a bigger blowout than normal. Agree. Number 12, Merfolk Seeker Keeper is the best blue common and was the scourge of arena for the first few bot iterations. Yeah, I love this card. Best blue common. And I think it just goes so well with the other top blue commons like so tiny, didn't say please, witching well, that little package of cards and then line up run away together in the mix when your opponent's trying to use a combat trick or something to punch through your secret keeper and you get a rebuy that blank their adventure combat trick, set them back tempo-wise. This deck is very good and very difficult to play against when it comes together. It took me a long time, longer than I'd like to admit, to really come around to Seeker Keeper being the best blue common because I felt like all the blue commons were just kind of medium. But once you have a couple secret keepers it just starts to unlock everything else in blues common power rankings to really like up their game like we talked about but part of the bad thing is it was so available on arena that it was so easy to draft the deck that it was nothing special on mtgo to get into the deck you actually had to pick secret keeper highly and it had to be open there was some nuance to drafting the deck and i think the format just got a bad rap initially because of how easy it was to draft the secret keeper deck on arena and how powerful that deck was Number 13, Sir Conrad is the mythic uncommon of the set. I was kind of resistant to this for a while. I was like, no, this can't, this isn't better than Revenge of Ravens, or this isn't better than just like cheap good removal, like Epic Downfall. But the more I played with this card or against this card, it just felt more and more like a rare. There's so much text on this card. So much text on this card, and it can single-handedly... First of all, if you're ahead, it just closes out the game so hard. Yes. Because your opponent's taking damage if they're chumping. And then at parity, it says your opponent has to break parity or they lose because you can just keep activating the mill ability over and over and pinging them to death. And if you're behind, I mean, it's not bad. It's not It's not anything special if you're behind. It's a 5-4 body. But it's a 5-4 four for 5 in black. Like, with the amount of text on this card, this could have been a 2-3. Right, absolutely. And we would have been like, okay, that seems reasonable. But the fact that it's so huge in a format where keyword big is just kind of good. Mm -hmm. Number 14, we would be remiss if we did not talk about... The only format where Oko is now legal, I think. <laughs> Oko is, in fact, completely unreasonable. 
uh, turn three Oko and limited is really tough to beat. I've had a chance to play with Oko a couple times in Throne of Eldraine, but now playing with it in Vintage Cube, <laughs> you really sort of understand how stupid it is. Like I knew it was busted in Eldraine draft and whatever, because it's just way more powerful than the other cards. But what it does to other cards that are very good is just absurd. Quick side note here, uh, you know, Jaybro won the 10K SCG con cube draft. Yeah, yeah. And he his top eight deck that he won with was black white like a bunch of sweepers and then just splashing blue green for oko <laughs> nice yeah card is completely unreasonable and if we're talking about limited as is garuk whatever whatever his keyword tag is do you know i've never played against a garuk what how are you so lucky or with it for that matter well that that does seem unlucky for you then i guess that balances out but yeah the, the card is uh almost as unreasonable like the only thing that makes it slightly more reasonable is that it's six mana not three I, that's weird yeah i've played a lot too between mtgo and arena mm-hmm. that can't are you sure that's true i'm certain never happened crazy number 15 if your opponent is blue splashing black or vice versa they probably have Lockmere serpent especially if they pass with six mana open with any reasonable amount of cards in their hand. I made the sickest soul read a couple weeks ago on stream. I hadn't even seen it. My opponent just like <laughs> didn't F6. They passed with six mana. I think they were just blue black. They weren't even splashing. And I was like, oh, I am not attacking with my thunderous snapper. And then I just passed and they shame cast it on end step. And I was like, yes, I still lost that game. But I think you like play the format enough. You get got by it enough that like you get those like tingly feelers up and you're like i think i'm gonna pass through combat here yep feel a disturbance in the force as it were since star wars is coming out exactly number 16 mono green aggro is very good and very real what's the uh what's the three musketeers here for mono green aggro can confirm after fnm last night oh yeah wildwood tracker rose thorn halberd mara leaf rider the three musketeers i would add sir Farin into that mix i think that card's mm-hmm. really good in mono green and not very good outside of that yeah for sure and i think ginger brute maybe gets an honorable mention but we're going to talk about ginger brute a little later on in this list yeah and that was a, a deck that we saw i think when we were looking at the spoilers and i think we talked about that cluster of cards in the crash course and then you know didn't draft it super early on i think maybe a couple weeks into the format is where we really started drafting that archetype yeah number 17 hybrid uncommons are actually flexible draft picks yeah this was i think something we really noticed early on because the monocolor decks was something we latched onto so early i think that was what we were trying to do i mean i think our second or third episode we were talking about this is these are the decks we want to draft if possible and then i think people caught on and then those decks dried up and then we started to explore other things but the hybrid uncommons are deceptively flexible and i think that's a phrase i'm using a lot this episode but the fact that you know deathless knight can go in black green it's going to be very good in black green it's basically going to be always castable for you but also can go in mono black or mono green and when we talk about mono we're meaning like near mono as well like maybe 13 14 plus sources of that color but the fact that the card goes in three different decks whereas you look at it you can go oh this only goes in black green is uh is actually quite powerful but i think that phrase deceptively flexible keeps coming up because there were so many surprises about throne of eldraine and i think that's part of the things that make it great you know you said we were going to gush about it and i think that's why we're gushing about it because there were so many hidden things to figure out or things that weren't immediately apparent number 18 here we go ben the hottest of takes the definitive lords of limited hybrid uncommon rankings we're gonna go bottom to top got to number 10 elite headhunter number nine okame ranger the amount of time we spent arguing about this list before recording was hilarious. <laughs> Number eight, <laughs> Thunderous Snapper. 
Number seven, Lock Dragon. Number six, Fireborn Knight. Number five, Resolute Rider. Number four, Rampart Smasher. Number three, Arcanist's Owl. Number two, Your Baby, Covetous Surge. And number one, Your Baby, Deathless Knight. Yeah, card did some work for me at FNM last night. Had that little Trail of Crumbs action. Two of those bad boys, two Rampart Smashers. That was the top end of my sick mono green deck. What do people say when they make these hot takes? Don't at me. Don't at me. You can add us, though. We can take it. For sure. Number 19, be wary of the heavy color committing rares. So things like Ayara, Torbrin, Yorvo. I think the exception of this is Gadwick as far as these triple, you know, color casting cost rares go. Gadwick's just very, very, very powerful. The other ones are good in their respective decks. And I think you can even take a flyer on Torbrin, but just be willing to move off of it. But I mm-hmm. I want to be mono black and mono green and get past my Ayaras and Yorvos rather than take them and say, I'm going to draft mono green, you know? Yeah, but like in a world where black isn't aggressively overdrafted, which I think we're sort of feeling like it is right now on Magic Online, I think you're taking Bake over like any of these besides Gadwick. I might take Torbrin over Bake. Okay. I would take Torbrin over Bake, I think. That's close, yeah. Torbrin is significantly better than Yorvo Yorvo and Ayara to me. Right. Yorvo is just a big dumb thing, and Ayara is like cute, but it's hard to draft a deck where it's optimized. Number 20, the holy trinity of Throne of Eldraine draft is Cauldron Familiar, Witch's Oven, and Sorcerer's Broom. Amen. I mean, Cat Oven is like, just sort of dominating standard or like is a piece of a lot of standard decks, but it's really good and limited. Yeah. And I think all three of those cards are very powerful when you get any two of them together. And I think you're supposed to aggressively pick those cards. And if you get them, great. If you don't get them, they might stay on the sideboard. You know, some of them still do powerful things individually. I think, you know, especially Broom, I've soapboxed about that quite a bit. And I think you're you're on team Broom as well. Oh, 100%. I was just going to say, I'm so so funny that you just used the phrase soapbox. I was going to say, I think the, the Lords of Limited most soapbox card for Throne of Eldraine has to be Sorcerer's Broom. Yeah, it, the card is great. It's a two drop that's perfectly fine. It's a non-human, which has a lot of synergies uh, with a lot of things going on in the format. And then as soon as you make a second broom, you're just like thrilled. And then sometimes you randomly make 15 brooms and savage your opponent with it. Yeah. And I think you've mentioned this before when we've talked about it, but your opponent has to respect it. As soon as it hits the battlefield, they have to go, how all in is their deck on Broom? Are they just putting it in because they could, you know, sack a food to make one? Or do they have like an engine piece and I need to get rid of this Broom right away? All right. Because once once they make the second one, it's too late, baby. <laughs> There's yeah. no stopping it. <laughs> it's like Pack Rat, basically, right? Yeah. And number 21, Hengewalker is the late pack payoff for monocolored decks. And this, I think, it was something I did was not wavelength I was on initially. And then after we started talking about those monocolored decks, you know, in the second week or so for second week became much more apparent. I thought this card was absolute garbage when I looked at the spoiler. Yeah, but, you know, I think the creature sizing in this format, I think they really nailed it because, you know, Green doesn't get a Centaur Courser. It doesn't get a 3-mana 3-3, and that's where you would expect to see these stats. But now any monocolored deck does get that in Hengewalker. And it's just a really nice, like, slots into those decks pretty perfectly. And it's the kind of card where you go, okay, I don't need to take this here because only monocolor decks should want this and I can scoop it up later. Absolutely. Shout out to Hengewalker. Number 22, Archon of Absolution is the most egregious design flaw in the set for Limited. I I couldn't agree more. This card feels so bad because mono white decks exist. Like how many times has your opponent dropped Archon? You've played mono white and you just have to go right click concede. 
It's the worst. I played the most heartbreaking game of Magic against Jamie Topples. We were both mono white and she had Archon of Absolution, dropped it down. And I was gonna get there with a beloved princess because I was ahead. I'd navigated this board state, crafted it carefully, sheet overextended a little bit. And then she had the outflank to just absolutely crush my soul. I thought I was actually going to beat an Archon of Absolution. Uh, another important safety tip here with Archon of Absolution, you cannot target this with the adventure from Silver Flame Squire. You cannot untap it and give it plus two plus two because it has hexproof from white, which I think is another design flaw. <laughs> yep. Number 23, Scalding Cauldron is a medium card. Most decks only want one, probably. So the award for the most roller coaster card evaluation has to go to Scalding Cauldron here, right? Yes, definitely. Came out initially very hot on this. I was a huge champion of Scalding Cauldron once I figured out that, you know, the format was really open and artifacts were better than we thought. And this card is essentially just open fire. And somehow that's still not quite good enough in this format, I think. And then we were really low on it. And now you just want one. I think that's where I'm at. And one is good. One is good, but they have pretty significant diminishing returns and people aren't valuing them super high because I think everyone sort of realizes that you just really only want one. And so it's not a card you need to prioritize. You will probably end up having an opportunity at some point in the draft grabbing this over not much. Number 24, this set is full of cards that look like bad cards we've seen before, but are actually good. This was, I think, a big theme of our sort of coming around to a lot of cards in the format. Yeah, Weaselback Redcap, I think first and foremost, you know, one mana, one one has smoke breathing, Lords of Limited Patent pending. (laughs) Uh, So you pay two mana to give it plus two plus oh. Actually, that's not even smoke breathing. It's way better than smoke. No, that's just like two times fire breathing. Yeah, it's double fire breathing. This card's very good. And it's early pressure. And you're not dumping mana into it early. But the fact that it's a huge threat late game and trades with things like, you know, Garenbrig Paladin late in the game is very relevant. Well, and it's like it's got two relevant creature types, right? It's not a human, but it also is a knight. I I just think like this card does so much for so little cost. Mm -hmm. We got Jousting Dummy on this list. This was one of our preview cards, and I think we sort of poo-pooed it and then just realized this card goes in basically any deck. Outflank looks like cards we've seen before that are bad, but like most white decks are happy playing like two copies of this. Yeah, and Fairy Guide Mother has done some serious work. You know, it looks like a one mana, one, one flyer that you probably don't want to put in your limited deck, but the the adventure really pushes it over the top and turns it into a great card. And I think you actually want to draw it later in the game. Yeah, I agree. Jousting Dummy, my most drafted card on MTGO. Wow. Love that guy. Number 25, there is hardly any X1 hate in the format, which makes aggro pretty viable. Like Curious Pair is the only thing that is really deflating when you've got a lot of two ones in your deck. And card or monitor, but like that card feels like kind of a junker. Yeah. Curious Pair is much more of a legitimate magic card. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. Yeah, I mean, I think you, we talked about before that adventures is what makes aggro really good. And I think this is sort of like the second point on that list of why aggro is good is like there's not a lot that punishes you for playing aggressive cards like Rimrock Knight. Also, I would actually kind of add Youthful Knight to the list of cards that punishes aggro. On Arena, when your opponent plays Youthful Knight and you've drafted one of these like Naya aggro decks, you're just like, okay, great. Never attacking until I can get that off the board. Yeah. I mean, the fact that there isn't like a a deal one to all creatures or a minus two minus two to all creatures. We've seen that kind of effect at uncommon in a lot of sets. And the fact that that doesn't exist here, I think opens up aggro quite a bit. 
Number 26, Into the Story is Worse Than Unexplained Vision. Ben, I'm embarrassed to say that I think I had Into the Story as my number one blue uncommon in the crash course. Yeah, I tried to steer you right, but you just wouldn't listen. I wouldn't listen. I was just so tempted that it, it, this was going to cost four mana, but it so rarely does. And the fact that you can just pick up Unexplained Vision and it's always going to be five mana and like draw three, scry three is basically like draw four maybe it's even better than draw four like i think unexplained vision is just kind of pushed and we don't really often see commons being better than uncommons like this yeah i will say into the story is better when you've got the merfolk secret keeper deck or the didn't say please deck number 27 don't let the arena bots fool you this set is super complex so yeah this this the format is totally different from mtgo to arena it's the greatest of all time on MTGO. Spoiler, we've been championing it all format long. Mm -hmm. And on Arena, it really is not. It's pretty obvious what you've been supposed to do in each iteration of the bots. Well, and the, I think the biggest problem is, is that it pairs down 15 plus viable archetypes to two or three. And when you're looking at something like Guilds of Ravnica or Ravnica Allegiance, that doesn't feel as bad because you're like, well, there's like five decks, maybe six decks if there's like a splashy deck. So five or six X getting paired down to two doesn't feel as bad. That feels like kind of close. But pairing down 15 plus to two or three is like a huge, huge difference. Yep. Number 28, Clackbridge Troll is significantly worse than it looks. In our show notes, significantly is bold, italicized, and underlined. Yeah, I really do not like this card at this point in the format. I think all of the top black uncommons are better than it. Sir Conrad, Epic Downfall, you name it. I think I'm taking bacon to a pie over this pack one pick one. I would give Clackbridge Troll, in, in all seriousness, like not being hyperbolic, I would give Clackbridge Troll a C plus and I could maybe, maybe be talked into giving it a B minus. So here's the deal about Clackbridge Troll is that it's an aggressive card and it's really only good in an aggressive deck. And outside of that, it feels like your opponent gets to do too many things with this. Like they get to decide it. You named it a Punisher card, right? Where your opponent gets to make the decision that's best for them. And that makes this card worse for you when you're the one casting it. So outside of an aggressive deck, I think I agree that it's not in the B range. Well, and, and you don't want your aggressive five drop to be something that your opponent can invalidate, that they have a choice to not let you beat their face in with. Like you give your opponent three chump blockers. Yes, that's true. That's not ideal for an aggressive card. I think I agree with you, buddy. Yeah. Blue Clackbridge Troll. Number 29. After all was said and done, Revenge of Ravens was probably a fine card in the format. This got a lot of discussion, and I think maybe it took some people a while to come around to how busted it was. Mm -hmm. And then people got on board with how busted it was after, you know, realizing it completely invalidated Blue-Red as a strategy. You know, if you don't have something like Heraldic Banner to give your stuff plus one, plus oh. But I think ultimately this is a less offensive card in the format than Archon of Absolution. I think I agree with you. Like, it's gotten to the point where like i see it in a pack and i'm not super excited by it because for one thing i think there are some decks that like don't really care about it like a mill deck or like a red green or green beefy non-human aggro deck like those decks don't care about the revenge of ravens tax so I, I think this card actually is is just fine and you can play around it people are main decking some naturalized effects like you can deal with this card just fine yep absolutely speaking of main decking those naturalized effects number 30 true love's kiss and to a lesser extent return to nature are totally main deckable cards yeah agree completely i'm actively looking to pick up one copy of each of these certainly happy main decking them on arena because there's so many ginger brute you know all that glitters nonsense you know running around. But I think even on MTGO, not the worst thing to end up with one of these in your main deck. 
Number 31, non-adventure combat tricks, specifically barge in, are quite playable. And I think I agree with this. And I'm even coming around to Insatiable Appetite. That card did some serious work for me. I had two copies of that in my deck last night at FNM. And I've been pretty hard on not thinking that's a good card. And I've just gotten got by it enough times, especially after playing Arena, because I think it gets played a lot more on Arena. It's hard to play around that and Garenbrig Carver. And having the option to have that and make your opponent try to play around that and Garenbrig Carver is big game. And pushing five damage on an unblocked creature in an aggressive green deck is also very strong. Yeah, I think this card plays particularly well with Ginger Brute, like being able to sacrifice that as a food once maybe Ginger Brute has gotten in its unblockable damage and now it's fodder. Like Insatiable Appetite is a two mana lava axe sometimes is kind of wild. And I think specifically Bargin really impressed me. I was pretty low on this card initially. I remember having a conversation with our last week guest, Ryan Sachs, on stream about how I was like, I don't want to play combat tricks that aren't attached to creatures in this format. That was sort of my hard stance early. And just like getting blown out by the trample on Bargin enough times, I was like, oh, this is an incredibly powerful effect for the red aggro decks and the red green non-human decks. Yeah, if you don't have Ferocity of the Wild, you have to have Bargin. Yeah, it just helps you close out so many games. Number 32, Garenbrig Paladin is the third best green common behind Outmuscle and Witchstalker. Yeah, this card is really strong. It's rare power level against some of the blue decks, you know, certainly single-handedly beats a lot of blue-red decks. And does an excellent job as top end in your low to the ground green deck. Certainly a fine beater in green mid-range decks. I think it's just a lot of text that's very problematic for a lot of decks in the format. And if your opponent isn't playing one of those decks, it's still a large threat. A five mana five five is a big game in this format. Yeah, and it's also far and away the best of the like adamant paladin cycle. It's just so, so strong. Number 33, Innkeeper and Clover are very real build arounds. So in terms of like adventure payoffs, they're definitely top of the heap. Mysterious Pathlighter is good and Wandermare is a distant, distant fourth in my opinion. I don't think a lot of green-white adventure decks care very much about the Wandermare. But Innkeeper and Clover are really powerful build arounds. And there was an iteration of the arena bots where those cards were running rampant and adventure decks were running rampant. That's no longer the case, I don't think. No. You can still get there with those cards on Arena. Clover feels difficult to get there with these days on MTGO because most people are picking the adventure cards pretty highly. Mm -hmm. But I do think Innkeeper is just really strong. Number 34, Lucky Clover can do some broken things. So if you haven't played with it before, here are a couple rundowns of I think the best things the card can do. Number one, you can make your opponent discard four with Harvest Fear. That's the adventure on Reaper of Night. You can also make two attacking four fours on turn three if you've got a one drop artifact. So if you go one drop artifact like Scalding Cauldron into Lucky Clover into Animating Fairy, animating both of them, that's a pretty busted start. That's like a vintage cube start right there. I think so. But you should also be aware of some non-bows that this card has, like with Hypnotic Sprite. So if you cast, I think it's Mesmerizing Glare, which is the counter a spell with CMC three or less. Well, if you've got Lucky Clover in play, the way that's going to happen with the stack is the copied version is going to resolve first countering the spell. And then the initial copy, the one you want to go into exile. So then you can have a two, one flyer is going to have no target and just go straight to the graveyard. Also works similarly with order of midnight. If you've only got one creature in the graveyard. So if you try to animate dead, your thing off of your order of midnight, then the second thing has no target and you don't get your two mana two, two flyer. So lucky clover giveth and lucky clover can taketh away. Number 35, Castles and the Adamant Lands are, by and large, pretty bad. Yeah, I think these are basically just basic lands. Like, I, I never prioritize the Adamant Lands. And there are some times in the draft where, like, 
if I'm in black, a castle Lothwain is not offensive to me. Or if I'm in red, castle Embrith is not offensive to me. But I think the white one is bad. The green one is essentially worse than a forest. Uh, the blue one is good in a Fires of Invention deck. But the adamant lands are just so replaceable. Or I mean, they're replaceable by basic lands because they're just not good. This was like a huge miss for me from the crash course. I don't know. I've kind of come around on the adamant lands a little bit. I, the way the adamant lands are in my brain now is a very minor boost to the quality of your deck if you end up heavily in one of those colors. Like I think, you know, the Dwarven, I was pretty, I thought Dwarven Mine was terrible until I saw that mono red deck you had that had four of them with like turning the dwarves into real cards with Ferocity of the Wilds. If you're heavy blue, putting back something like, you know, Fey of Wishes, if you get a card like that with a blue adamant land, like they do some things in the format. They're not high picks and you wheel them and you have to be monocolored, but I think they're interesting part of the format. How many basics do you need outside of these adamant lands to feel comfortable running one of them? I think 10. Yeah, I think so. I think you got to be aware of the cost that this has, not only as a tapped land, but the fact that like, how often are you reliably going to be able to turn this on? So I I think 10, 10 plus is good. Right. You can't jam them into any deck, but I do think if you know when to play them and you get them, it's cool that they give you a bonus. Yep. Number 36, Crashing Drawbridge is a strong card in big green decks. I mean... You know what's better than a Fierce Witch Stalker or a Garenbrig Paladin? What's that? A Fierce Witch Stalker with haste or a Garenbrig Paladin with haste? Oh, you got me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this card is just really, really strong in those decks, I think. Yeah, and I think it's also cute that it can blow out Gingerbrute if your opponent doesn't know about that interaction. You know, you're on blocks and they give Gingerbrute haste or can't be blocked by creatures except with haste. Boom, you give your team haste and you get to eat their Gingerbrute. Yeah. Number 37, Brimstone Trebuchet has reach. Number 38, Queen of Ice is a five mana Frost Links. Shout out to you on figuring this out. I think even in our crash course. Yeah, it's not a great card. I, I would have to credit Quarter Calls a little bit. I think he was talking about it even before I was, but just doesn't really do what you want to do. It's not a good aggressive card. It's not a good defensive card. And if it's not doing either of those two things well, like really the only home for it is if you get a blue green Avenger deck mm-hmm. with Innkeeper. And even then it's like a 20 through 23rd type card. Right. You don't have to prioritize it. They'll go late. I think they're good sideboard cards if you're like a clunky or controly blue deck trying to like dirtle with folio fancies or something. If you, you know, are against an aggro deck and you need to swap into something that can go toe to toe with that, Queen of Ice does a fine job, but it is not, as I initially put it, the best blue common in the set. Number 39, Covetous Urge. I owe this card an apology. It looks clunky. I've I've been using clunky to describe magic cards as a pretty big insult lately. Yeah. Even in Vintage Cube. But this is actually just really, really strong. Yeah. I I, Shout out to me. I I pegged this card pretty early, and I think it has just even improved upon my initial evaluation. It's really, really strong. Getting to nab your opponent's best thing and then play it. It feels brutal when this gets cast against you. Mm-hmm. If you're ahead, it slams the door shut on the game. If you're at parity, gives you a huge advantage. And if you're behind, sometimes you have enough mana to get something to get you out of the situation that you're behind in. Right. It's not the worst if this is a six mana Scorching Dragonfire sometimes. Mm-hmm. Number 40, Trapped in the Tower. We owe you an apology. It is, in fact, quite good. Yeah, I was hating on this card quite a bit. One of my takeaways from this format is I have a tendency to see a card like that and see what makes it bad and to assume that situation is always going to come up. And it just doesn't come up as often as you think, even if there are commons that punish a card, like Fairy Guide Mother punishing this or not being able to go on flyers or bounce like Runaway Together. I really thought Runaway Together was going to be good and I latched onto that interaction there. Mm -hmm. And I think the, the moral of the story for me is, you know, there might be commons that punish a removal spell, but 
sometimes you still need removal and it's going to be playable and it's going to do its thing. I think you and I are wary of enchantment based removal a lot of the time in this format. Like, so beyond trapped in the tower, charmed sleep, so tiny, like even frogify was quite playable, I think. And and that looks, I mean, that is like Kasmina's transmutation for more of the spark where it was pretty terrible, but I think enchantment based removal is something I'm going to try and just be a little higher on in general. Well, I think that was a, a deceptive thing about this format because it has been bad frequently a lot and it was not here. Number 41, the blue-red card draw archetype is dependent on getting past uncommons and rares, but if you do get those uncommons and rares, it's a really powerful engine, and the deck really goes off, especially if you get an improbable alliance on turn two, say. Yeah, for sure. But do not go into this deck with Bloodhaze Wolverines and Steelgaze Griffins as the things you're excited about powering out. No, absolutely. 42, each color has a deep roster of commons, but they don't all go in the same deck. We were talking about this with black, like how I just don't feel like I know what the third best black common is because there are just so many different decks where, you know, if I'm in black, white aggro, then Smitten Swordmaster is going to be great. I'm going to want as many of those. If I'm in blue, black, I probably want the first Reaper of Night. You know, like there's just a lot of different considerations. So you want to find the synergy in your deck. I like that. Find the synergy in you. <laughs> Number 43, Seven Dwarves is a worthy catch all I have really only come around to this late in the format. I had this maybe as one of my top commons. No, I had Bloodhaze Wolverine and Rimrock Knight as my top commons. So yeah, I don't think I've ever been on Seven Dwarves until the Arena Madness. And I saw how strong it was when you got, you know, two, three of them out. It it does get there. And I think if once you get three, yeah. you're fine playing them. And anything past three, it just becomes a very good card. And even two, maybe even one, depending on the kinds of... Uh red green non-human synergies you have like with a ferocity of wild i'm just like fine playing one of these in my deck but yeah anything beyond that it's really really quite good number 44 building mana bases with adamant payoffs in mind is a huge part of this format and i think just as a, a sub point here you should be thinking about your mana base as early as pick two of your draft yeah i think it's very common to have a 14-3 mana base 13-4 12-5 split those are all really unusual splits that don't normally happen in limited and it's one of the biggest ways you can give yourself an advantage in this format is building your mana base correctly and making sure you have appropriate sources for the types of cards you want to put in your deck. And this is one of the reasons I think we came out at least early. I mean, I'm not sure how much I feel this is the case overall, but we came out early with this being an 18 land format. And that was mostly because like I wanted 11 sources for my adamant stuff, but I wanted seven sources to be able to maybe cast like my one bacon to a pie, even if it's not on turn four or whatever, like being able to know that I could eventually get to two black sources. Yeah. And I think, you know, <clears throat> The other thing I would add on to this after being at FNM last night is that maybe we just need to revisit building mana bases again. There was there was some there was some sketchy stuff going on there as far as splashing and what people were considering splashing. Yeah, I think we've done building mana bases in limited as an episode before if people want to revisit that, but I definitely think it's like an evergreen topic that we can always go back to. I think it's just something that you and I take for granted because it's a strength of both of mm -hmm. ours, but definitely a skill that you need to learn in magic. Number 45, beloved princess is the healer's hawk of arena. The hottest take of them all. The hottest take of them all. I really feel strongly about this. I think there's a really low to the ground white deck that you can draft on arena that has beloved princess and uses combat tricks 
You get some plus one plus one counters on there from an idyllic range. You're slapping all the glitters in there. Basically, you're trying to turn this into an unblockable Baneslayer Angel that's impossible to race. And I think it's very real to do that because you're incentivized to play cards like Silver Flame Ritual anyway. And as soon as as soon as you get this to three power, it's a must deal with threat. I just want to be clear. We went from comparing Beloved Princess to Healer's Hawk to comparing it to Baneslayer Angel. It's great. All right. I'm sold. Number 46. Tournament Grounds is unplayable garbage. Take it out of a pack and rip it in half and throw it away and never put it in your deck ever. How do you really feel? On face value, I thought this card was bad. And then I drafted a deck with four inspiring veterans, the red, white two drop. And I was like, this is of course the deck where tournament grounds belongs. I'll go eight planes, eight mountains and tournament grounds. And I'll always be able to cast this on turn two. And then I had slaying fire in hand and my opponent was at four and I had two mountains and a tournament grounds in play and I wanted to throw up. Yeah, it just it, there are some sketchy this this incentivizes speaking of sketchy mana bases. This incentivizes building sketchy mana. Yeah, bases. People are like, oh, I can be in red, white and play two tournament grounds and then I get to play steel claw lance. Just don't don't do that ever, please. Number 47, Gingerbrute is better than it looks, but I think it's also a tad on the overrated end as well right now. Interesting. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So I think it started out going under the radar, you know, one mana, one, one, really cute flavor. I think it looked like maybe it was only in the set for flavor, but actually, you know, is a very relevant card in the mono green beatdown deck, does some stuff in the blue white deck, especially if you've got like an aggro version of that with all the glitters. There are a lot of places where Gingerbrute pulls its weight. And I think once people figured out that it was good in some of those decks, people are just generally excited about, oh, let's put this sweet card in my deck, you know, one mana, one, one haste, unblockable, and started picking it too highly. I think the truth is somewhere in the middle. I think this is the card you're generally supposed to get on the wheel and put in your deck when it goes in your deck. Yeah, maybe not exactly on the wheel, but certainly like late, like pick six, seven, eight, that sort of thing. Yeah, seven, eight sounds right. I think you want to be really sure that Ginger Brute is going to be good like at all stages of the game for you. I think a, the most egregious thing I see is folks just throwing it in like a green black food deck where you're like, well, I have Trail of Crumbs. It's like, yes, sure, but you don't care about attacking your opponent on turn one in a green black food deck. If you're a grindy deck with Trail of Crumbs or like Cat Oven or something, you don't care about that. So don't put this card in when you need it to combine with other cards, right? That's the, my, my favorite saying, don't play bad cards to make your good cards better. Number 48, heavy green decks get clogged on the four drop slot easily. Be wary of this. You've got Fierce Witchstalker, Outmuscle, OK Adversary, all the green hybrid uncommons. It's very, very easy to just be like, oops, I can't do anything until turn four. Right. And that's one of the reasons Thunderous Snapper isn't good, because then when you have all those fours, you can't put fives and sixes in your deck as well. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Snappy Pappy? Snappy Pappy, I know. Not good. Wow. Well, it's fine. It was toward the bottom of our power rankings. That's true. The definitive power rankings. Number 49, Ferocity of the Wilds is the key to making mono red aggro and red green monsters great. Right. I mean, this again goes in that list of cards that look like bad versions of cards we've seen before, but is actually very good. I mean, it's three mana, but it looks like it's restrictive because it's only non-humans. But this really makes a lot of aggro decks tick. Yep. It feels very nice when you have it on the battlefield and you have a couple Rimrock Knights out, but your opponent has cards that trade with them, like a 1-1 laying around or whatever. You just know that that dwarf is getting in for three damage. All right, Ben, here we are. Number 50, despite Arena giving it a bad rap, Throne of Eldraine is the greatest of all time draft format. 
Yeah, I, I stand by it. We called it week one, week two. I'm still there. Yeah, I mean, we've gotten so many follow-ups like either on Twitter or in our streams, I think, of people being like, well, now that it's a month deep or now that it's two months deep, do you still feel that? And honestly, I, I feel like my love for the format has only grown since then. Like discovering all these like cards that were better than they looked or discovering new archetypes or getting to play around all these fun rares. Like those were things we did not know in week two and three when we were still like, this is the greatest format of all time. And it just continues to like give you these little nuggets, these little gems of what it has to offer. I will say it is a hundred percent a different format from arena to MTGO. Playing it on arena felt very bad. Yes. I mean, it just did. Yeah. It felt it felt bad. And I, I'm I don't mean to bash arena. Like and we we primarily play MTGO because we like drafting. And I love Arena and I think it's a good program. And I think it's doing great things for magic. But this format was a pale imitation of itself. And I think probably just one of the worst formats that's been on Arena. Yeah. Well, I mean, not only did it feel like you had exploitable things to do like the Secret Keeper mill deck or now like these these aggro decks that I think, you know, we've talked about how you can combat those pretty effectively. But the fact that there's so many things that aren't open to you, like the blue-green splash deck, because the bots are just going to take rares for no reason highly, like I, I think all of that adds up to some feel-bad scenarios where like you open a Fae of Wishes and you go, well, that, that that's my favorite card in the format. I feel like it's really, really fun to take that first and get to, you know, navigate a draft in a way that maximizes it, but I'm just not going to really be able to do that on arena right and i think the other thing that's kind of interesting you know you made you wrote an article about the characteristics of great limited formats Mm -hmm. you know some time ago and i think the only characteristic from those that i'm remembering that this doesn't quite have is lands that are really high picks but i think it excels so hard in some of the other areas like how open it is and how many sweet build around rares there are and just the sheer variety of things that you can do and win with in the format. Right. We've said this so many times, but aggro is good, control is good, and everything in between is good. It just feels like the world is your oyster. Absolutely. I think that's a great place to wrap us up there. Hopefully, ELD holds up over time and goes down as one of the greatest draft formats. If not, it's still always going to hold a special place in your and my heart. Thank you, as always, to Salty Pretzels for our intro and outro music. Make sure you give that a listen. Come check us out on Twitch and Twitter. Ben is on Christmas break. I think we'll be seeing him streaming up a storm. Twitch.tv slash Mr. Metronome for him. Mr. is spelled out. Twitch.tv slash Lord Tupperware for me. We're both under those same usernames on Twitter, and you can tweet at the podcast at Lords of Limited. If you've got any feedback about the show or any questions, shoot us an email at lordsoflimited at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great holiday week. Hope you're having a great time leading up to the new year. And we will catch you next week for another episode of Lords of Limited. Thanks, everybody. See you later. And like bumping the poost, bumping the poostness. Bumping the poostness. <laughs> what what, what, what just were happened? you even trying to say? I don't know. Bumping the power is what I was trying to say. I don't know. I don't know where that came from.
<laughs> I'm sweating a little bit now again, man. 